0: Spiritual warfare, I propose, is simply not adequately being studied by a majority of believers. And yet, even for those who are not ignorant of Satan's schemes, they still don't seem to be loudly proclaiming the conclusions about their knowledge in this critical area of the Christian life. It seems as though most of us don't quite don't quite realize there's really even a war going on in the spiritual dimension. What are we really up against in the war of the Christian life? Edward Gross, in a helpful book, writes the following, War is brutal. Its very name produces thoughts of destruction, death, sorrow, pain, and irreparable loss. Loved ones are separated, plans are postponed, factories are converted from normal functions to producing everything necessary to win the conflict. Vacations, rest, and relaxation are all sacrificed during war. Attention is riveted on defending and preserving the basic freedoms and necessities of life which are cherished. During war, survival becomes a common concern. Who would go to war if it were not necessary? Who would choose the foxhole over the easy chair or the clash of enemies over the embrace of loved ones? Certainly no rational human being would prefer wartime to peacetime, but sometimes there is no option but war. At times, individuals and nations become obsessed with the spirit of aggression or revenge They become bent on conquering others. And otherwise, peace-loving individuals are forced for the survival of their own freedom and lives to pick up arms and defend themselves. In such cases, many people view warfare as a duty. However, there are always others who choose either to run from or to submit to the opponent. They would rather bear the consequences of retreat or defeat than pay the price of war. Certainly the issues of warfare reveal much about the character and conscience of individuals. Edward Gross goes on to say, Warfare is not only a physical reality, it is a spiritual reality also. It is a fact that the Christian cannot overlook with impunity. The enemy is around us and within us. Satan and his demonic hosts are constantly poised For an attack on God's children. The great weapon that Satan employs in his attacks is sin in all its forms. The sinful nature of every human being, Christian and non Christian, leans toward obeying his commands and suggestions. Unbelievers are his helpless captives, and countless malevolent spirits are at his immediate disposal. The devil assembles the world, the flesh, and his demonic forces in constant opposition to the things of God. Christians are enlisted into this warfare immediately upon entering the kingdom of God. The Bible is their survival manual. It presents an entirely new way of life, worldview, which believers must embrace. Basic training involves becoming disciplined in spiritual perception. Believers must understand who the enemy is and what are the enemy's tactics. They must understand what are their own strengths and weaknesses. Jesus is their captain to whom Christians are to look for the supply of everything concerning the conflict. Without such basic training, Christians are left to learn by experience. And that can be deadly in warfare. Too few pastors, he says, include spiritual warfare in their discipling courses. It is no wonder that the enemy has almost free course within our ranks. I think those are some wise words. And this is precisely why, as your pastor, I don't want any of you to be left without the wherewithal to both understand and defend your spiritual life against the enemy of our souls. And this is why I've labored over the past four messages, and then on into tonight, and then on as we complete our series on the believer's armor, prepare to meet your enemy over the next several weeks. And I want to give you God's basic biblical training from the manual in order to Battle to do warfare against Satan and his demons. Now, I said that what I wanted to concentrate on tonight was to ask and then helpfully and hopefully answer the question what can demons do or not do to the Christian? That's a very, very important and strategic question. And for tonight, I want to give you five major principles. Five major principles. That I want to go over tonight in order to help you and to help me understand what demons can and cannot do to true Christians. Here's number one. Number one. If you've got a pen, you might write this down and meditate on these truths forever and a day. Number one. Number one. Satan and demons are real and cunningly work to destroy true Christians. Let me say that again. Satan and demons are real and cunningly work to destroy true Christians. So, don't be deceived by their trickery. Don't be deceived by their trickery. And when I give you these principles, including this first one, I'm going to tell you what the principle is, and then I'm going to use sort of like a semicolon and then a so, like a so what? As a result of that principle, what are you to do? And so if it's true that Satan and his demon hosts are real, and they are cunningly trying to destroy us as true Christians, so what? What's our response? What do we do? And the answer is, don't be deceived by their trickery. Why do I say that? Well, it seems to me that in our culture, especially the culture uh, which uh, engulfs us, we can't get around it, we're a part of the culture, Uh, we see it through media, we see it through conversations, through work, it is every much the air that we breathe, and it is for us an opportunity so often to buy their idea, that is the culture, that Satan isn't real. That demons aren't factual. They aren't out there. We're we're making all of this up. Maybe even Christians are making this up to repress people, uh, to get them off course, uh, to confuse them, uh, maybe to scare them into the kingdom or some such idea like that. And so I think we need to, to reaffirm not only what the Bible says, but because of what the Bible says, reinforce to people that Satan and his demons are real and they cunningly attempt to work to destroy true Christians and we have to be aware of their schemes. Now, I said that earlier in our series, but I think it bears repeating because when I tell you what demons can't do, we'll then have the tendency to assume that we're safe from them. And we are not. We must understand that they are real. And our culture, for the most part, even though they might have uh, flings of fancy uh, with angels or, or with uh, the occult or something like that, and then they move on to something else because another fad will come down the pike, uh, they, for the most part, I think, uh, those people that we interact with in the world, presume that the world is very naturalistic, very mechanistic, a closed system, and they deny anything as real that which they can't see or perceive or hear or taste or touch. And I think that's the devastating legacy of the doctrine of evolution. That's the world we live in. Mechanistic, naturalistic, a closed system. There's nothing out there. There's just us. That's the sort of uh, rule of science today. And yet Wayne Grudem has helpfully pointed out, I believe, that Christians mustn't deny the biblical reality of Satan just because most people do that very thing. Listen to what he says. Some people, influenced by a naturalistic worldview that only admits the reality of what can be seen or touched or heard, deny that demons exist today and maintain that belief in their reality reflects an obsolete worldview taught in the Bible and other ancient cultures. However, if Scripture gives us a true account of the world as it really is, then we must take seriously its portrayal of intense demonic involvement in human society. He says rightly, in my judgment, our failure to perceive that involvement with our five senses simply tells us that we have some deficiencies in our ability to understand the world, not that demons do not exist. The problem is that the world is not just a mechanistic, naturalistic, closed system where there isn't anything out there. There is. In fact, let's turn to the Word of God to find that out. Turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And I will show you what God says about the matter in Revelation chapter 12. This is. This is what the Word of God says about the evil one and that he is real and that his demons are real. Revelation chapter 12. I wish we had time to go through the entire chapter and point out a few things uh, in a running dialogue, but we don't. Look at Revelation 12 verse 7. The Bible says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Now, this, of course, has symbolic language, but that doesn't take away from the fact that Satan is real, and we're going to read about that. It goes on to say, "...and the dragon and his angels fought back." This is, a, this is an angelic galactic battle. And it happened at a point in time. But he, that is the dragon and his angels, commonly called demons... He was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven and the dragon was thrown down. And then John the Apostle describes who he is, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That tells you that Satan is here. He's around. He's in the world. The deceiver of the whole world, it says. And he was thrown down to the earth. Satan is on the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. His demon hosts are on the earth. And John says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. John just tells us, very honestly and very transparently through this vision that Satan is real, that demons are real, and that they are cunningly attempting to destroy the faith of true Christians. And he does so because he knows his time is short. And he has great wrath. Verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. Who's the woman? Israel. Israel. The woman who had given birth to the male child, that's Christ. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. In other words, he was trying to do anything he could to wipe out the people of God. Verse 16, But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is not fantasy. Even though it's using symbolic language, These words mean something, and they have literal reality attached to them. Satan is real, and he attempts to destroy those who are in his way. Now, to bring it to our level, how does he fight you? How does he fight me? Well, look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We alluded to this before, and we should look to it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 4. In their case, the God of this world. Small g, but the God of this world, another phrase to depict Satan, he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's what Satan does. Against unbelievers, against all unbelievers, he brings them in captivity to his diabolical plans. He's the God of this world and he seeks to blind their minds so that they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. Praise God that verse 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts, believers' hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So how does he fight us? us as in humanity. He attempts to blind the mind of every unbeliever and the only way that your eyes and my eyes are open is when God opens them just as He did in creation when light was shining out of the darkness. Our hearts were darkened in sin. We were confused. We had no understanding of the gospel and it was only by the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ that light shined out of darkness. It was shown in our hearts because of the good purposes and grace of God. You say, well, all right, that's what He does to unbelievers, and we have our minds opened through the light, just like creation. Let light come, and it came, and it was so. We have nothing to worry about. No, look at chapter 10. Look at chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. Satan's not by any means done with us. In fact, because we're now Christians, he wasn't able to successfully keep us blinded to our sin. Now, he attempts even for believers or against believers to seduce us, to trick us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, Paul meaning there, uh, not that we as Christians are in the flesh or fleshly. He just means while we are human, while we are encased in this humanity, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We don't have carnal weapons. For, he says in verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And what are those strongholds? Verse 5 tells us. Arguments. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. You know what Satan does against believers? He attempts to trick them by cute, elaborate, philosophical or theological arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. What we know to be true about God. And what he does is he tries to make us think that what is true about God is actually untrue. And what is untrue about God is actually true. That black is white and white is black. And that's why Paul says, and we must take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's how we fight back. We destroy those arguments. We, we demolish them. It's like that, that edifice of that building by way of analogy, and, and as that fortress is going up with all of these uh, ornate philosophical arguments uh, that Satan is wanting to spin in the air so the superstructure, when it goes up, will look like it's true regarding the knowledge of God, but when you go into that edifice and when you check it out, you find out that the floors have all been philosophically rearranged. And you and I can be confused. And we think light is darkness and darkness is light. That's what He does. He attempts to to trick us. That's what He does. And for those unbelievers that we talked about in chapter 4, their minds are unbelieving. Do you know how far Satan goes? Look at Hebrews chapter 2. I'll tell you how far he goes with unbelievers. In Hebrews chapter 2, you may have read this before but this is an amazing thing that scripture tells us this is what it teaches us in chapter 2 verse 14 since therefore the children that is the children of men humanity share in flesh and blood he speaking of christ he himself likewise partook of the same things in other words he became a human being like us that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and then notice this, verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know what Satan does with unbelievers? He has them enslaved in their lifelong through fear. Now, some of these schemes are elaborate and cunning and sophisticated. And, and these enslaved individuals, humanity, are being progressively destroyed. And what Christ did when He came was to actually destroy the one who's the destroyer. He's actually giving life to the one who Scripture says here has the power of death. We're talking about a life and death struggle here, folks. We're talking about warfare. Edward Gross is right. If if you don't have the right basic training, if you don't have the the manual to do battle with your mortal enemy, then you're done. You're toast. We've got to fight with the right weaponry. We don't we don't battle with with carnal weaponry. We have. Strong, divine, powerful weaponry. You know, we're not doing battle with with Satan You know, through a water gun. That's not going to do anything. We've got to be able to destroy those philosophical arguments, which, which means we have to know truth. We have to know the truth of the Word of God. We have to battle the very one who is the opposite of truth, but he makes things that aren't truth look like truth. That's what he does. But... There are still people in our world, maybe even those who profess Christ at times, who don't believe in a personal living devil nor demons. Sometimes if you were to ask them, they'd say, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I haven't seen one. doesn't appear as though anybody's hanging around me. I'm not deceived. David Pallison writes, The modern age deadens people to the reality of spiritual warfare. Most Christians would agree on this. Much of Western intellectual life in the past 250 years has been dedicated to demythologizing God and the devil, good and evil. He's right. The practical atheism of modern intellectual life has made reality to be fundamentally material and social, not spiritual. Belief in the devil is seen as a primitive curiosity, uh, the resort of people ignorant of the real forces, chemical, neurological, psychological, sociological, that play out in human life. To modern skeptics and unbelievers, religion is a comforting opiate or a self-serving illusion. The devil and his God are dead For those with eyes to see science, technology, and medicine reinforce this dominant ideology that only the natural world exists. And guess what? That's a lie of the devil. That's exactly what he wants us to believe. That we live in a closed system. That it's mechanistic. That it's naturalistic. That this is all there is. That's actually one of his philosophical arguments where he convinces people that this is all there is and that salvation is in neurology. Salvation is in psychology. Salvation is in sociology. It's in everything else but the God that Christians proclaim. Guess what? That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's what Satan does. And that's why the Word of God paints a very, very different picture of reality. Scripture overwhelmingly teaches that there truly is a devil, that there are indeed demons in the world, and that they're very real, and they ceaselessly are active, as we saw from Revelation chapter 12. I mean, he was cast down, and presumably a third of those angels were cast down with him, and when they were cast out of heaven, somewhere probably between Genesis one thirty one and Genesis 3.1, when the serpent is mentioned, you say, why after Genesis one thirty one? and before Genesis 3. Because in Genesis one thirty one it says, and God saw all that He made and it was what? It was good. So that doesn't mean that Satan was anywhere around at that point. But somewhere after that and before Genesis 3.1, when he's introduced into the picture, he was cast down. And he's real. And he's there. And he wants to trick us. And sometimes people say, well, what was happening up in heaven? What was that sort of uh, angelic galactic battle that was going on. I don't know. Theologians call that theodicy, the origin of evil. And I don't know all the answers to that. I know, I know some of the conclusions. Look in your Bible at Jude 6, and I'll show you a few. We can't go through all of it, but in the book of Jude, the tiny little epistle of Jude, it's, it's in the shadow of Revelation. It's just to the left in your Bibles of, of the book of Revelation. And it is a major epistle in the New Testament. And notice what it says in Jude 6. It's only one chapter, so we don't say Jude 1-6 because there isn't a chapter 2. We just say Jude 6. And notice what it says. Jude 6, "...and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority..." So maybe that suggests to us that they were rebelling against the authority of God and they tried to suppose their own authority against God, but left their proper dwelling, He, God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Well, apparently some of those, and we don't know exactly why, they're still chained even to this day. Jude 6. How about Second Peter chapter 2? Second Peter chapter Two. This also seems to allude to either this group or another second Peter chapter two, verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, maybe another reference to that very cast uh, casting of them down to the earth, but cast them into hell, or maybe uh because the Greek word is Tartarus, maybe the uh the place of the or the abode of the dead, he cast them into uh the place of the dead and committed them to chains. Um some manuscripts say pits of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. You say now now there would be people, again in our world, mechanistic, naturalistic, closed system that say you read something like that in the Bible and you say, poppycock. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. I mean, You're trying to tell me that there was some kind of major angelic battle in heaven and this guy, Satan, was cast down and there were a bunch of angels that were cast down with him maybe because of some authority battle and now they're chained in this gloomy darkness to be kept in the judgment? Yes, I believe that. Why? Because the Word of God says it. And because I believe in the Word of God, I believe what it says. And I believe it's sufficient. And I believe it's true. And I believe it's real. Look at First Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And what did he do when he was alive in the Spirit? Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. You say, can you give a little bit more insight into that? Well, I wish I could. But I do know that it says in verse 21, Jesus Christ, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. I don't know all the details, of all of this uh, incarceration and gloomy darkness. And who are these angels? As over against the angels in Jude 6 and, and 2 Peter. But I do know this. Jesus Christ is the authority over them all. And you know, in a sense, that's good enough for me. I just know that He's in charge. I just know that He has authority over them. And, at the top of that list is Satan himself. You say, well... If these angels, these demons, are in these gloomy places, some of them, and if it says they will always be incarcerated there until the judgment of the great day, is there a possibility that some of them, because they've been there a long time and they've been thinking about their prior actions, including their rebellion in heaven, can they be redeemed? And the answer is no. Once they fell, they are considered forever in eternity unredeemable unredeemable they are a multitude of unredeemable angel angels based on the leadership of their father the father of lies satan himself and if they could even though they're in these bonds and there are apparently others who aren't in that kind of bondage in the gloomy darkness they are here they are around They're with satan and they are all about existing to wage war against god and against the redeemed but even they, the ones who are active, the ones who are here, and Satan himself, are unredeemable. They can never be salvaged, never be saved, never be delivered. They will be forever judged. And we know the book of Revelation tells us that. They'll be thrown into the pit. And, and while some are chained up in this darkness, others are roaming the earth seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. Wayne Grudem says, demons will try every tactic to blind people to the gospel and keep them in bondage to things that hinder them from coming to God. They will also try any other means possible to hinder a Christian's witness and usefulness. And as I said, the guy at the top of that list is Satan himself. Listen to some of the phrases that Scripture uses as either his names or at least descriptions of his actions. Adversary the evil one, Beelzebul, enemy, accuser, devil, slanderer, god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, serpent, dragon, murderer, liar, tempter. That's a guy I don't want to meet in a dark alley. Right? He's real. Scripture would not be going effusively over these kinds of descriptions. Why waste paper if he's not real? Why waste the ink if he's not real? Of course he's real. And he'll stop at nothing to thwart the plan of Almighty God. But you cannot be tricked. You say, well, what's he all about? You know what he does? He originates sin. And he tries to get you and me to commit that sin and to perpetrate that sin and to lead as many people as he can to that devilish eternity because he knows where that's he knows that's exactly where he's headed, and he knows that is that, that that's his final end, and he wants other people to go with him. His diabolical plan is to bring as many people as he can with him to the pit of hell. And he'll use every means to do it. Don't be tricked. Number two. Number two. Yes, he's real. He works to destroy true Christians. Don't be deceived by the trickery. Number two, demons, including the devil himself, can only do what God's sovereign purposes allow and direct him ultimately to do. I'll say it again. Demons, including the devil himself, can only do what God's sovereign purposes will allow and ultimately direct him to do. So, trust God with your spiritual life. Trust God. Trust God's sovereignty. I mean, I've, I've definitely painted a picture that Satan is real, that, that demons are real. They're in the world, they're all about destroying us. Don't be deceived by their trickery. And there could be someone who says, I'm really fearful. But know this God's on our side. God's on our side, and God is sovereign, and He will not allow the devil or His demon hosts to do anything in His sovereign purposes that God doesn't want him to do. And he may even ultimately direct him to do things and sometimes even to, to give us a sense of what he allows Satan to do so that we can trust God even in the midst of the battle. In fact, look at Job. Job chapter 1. Job 1. This is, of course, very, very famous. Job 1 and Job 2. There was a man in the land, Job 1-1, in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters, had ten children. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Job was someone who actually predated almost the entire corpus of people other than probably Adam and Eve and a few in those early days. Job was early, early, early. And he was a great man. And the Bible says that if they got together and there was some sin involved, I wanted to, to bring these offerings to the Lord so that everything would be okay. Verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. That, by the way, is a phrase that refers to angelic beings. Sons of God. It's another way of talking about angels. And they presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Satan. Satan the adversary in the Hebrew. And the Lord said to Satan, now this is fascinating, there's a dialogue between the Lord God Almighty and the adversary. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Now this is a, this is a bad thing for us. Here's his answer. Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Uh-oh. I do the same thing. I'm walking to and fro on the earth. I'm walking up and down it. So is He. Oh, dear. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered My servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Did you notice that God is actually presenting Job to Satan? Have have you considered him? Do you know him? Now, Now, God's not tempting, right? Because James 1 says God does not tempt any man nor can he himself be tempted but God is confident and sovereignly disposing the idea that Job and Satan in a sense get together have you considered my servant Job then Satan answered the Lord verse 9 and said does Job fear God for no reason have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side in other words Satan's trying to goad God into thinking, well, of course he serves you because you've got him landlocked. You've got him hedged in. You've got him protected on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. In other words, take away your hedge, take away your protective power, and he'll curse you to your face. In other words, he's got true motives when he doesn't have all the goodies. And the Lord said to Satan, "Verse twelve: Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Now that's frightening. That's frightening. Only against him, that is physically, do not stretch out your hand." So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he's in that earthly toing and froing, upping and downing, and he sees Job. Verse 13, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and there came a messenger to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. There was this marauding band of Sabaeans And they they did their havoc, they wreaked their havoc. Verse 16, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. The sheep and the servants? Well, there were 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants. And they were all wiped out. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, verse 17, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. This is incredible. Verse 18, While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. No wonder, verse 20 says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Worshipped? Well, God said, look, if you mess around with Job, he's a righteous man. He's going to worship me. And you know what God was doing with an object lesson of Job to Satan? You said he would curse me to my face if I took away the protection. And what did Job do? He worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now what's interesting to me is, if we didn't have this book of Job in our Bibles, all we would know is a naturalistic, mechanistic, closed system. Right? A marauding band of people, Wind, natural disaster. That's all that we would know about this. So, something came from the sky, it burned up the sheep, and uh, a great wind came across the wilderness. No, it's just, a, just an unfortunate, unlucky day for Job and his people. But actually, what's happening is there's a battle going on still between God and Satan. Job 2. Verse 1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. I mean, someone might say, Lord, lay off Job. Come on. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then verse 4, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. In other words, all the external things were happening, right? his servants, his livestock, even his own children, that's bad enough. But if you mess with his physical life, he's going to buckle. Stretch out your hand, Satan says, and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. Now there's some Satanology there. There's some doctrine of Satan. He's apparently somehow and can be involved in natural disaster, wind, marauding bands, sort of getting into their hearts and and wanting them to wreak havoc and take swords and kill people and, and even physical extremities, somehow according to the doctrine of Satan. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord verse 7 and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head and he took a piece of broken pottery to Job which with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes my goodness and his wife said to him do you still hold fast your integrity integrity curse God and die but he said to her you speak as one of the foolish women speak would uh, the foolish women would speak shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And it was so cataclysmic and people were putting their hands on their faces that even three of his friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, they came and for seven days, according to verse 13, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now look, there, there are some things going on here in this galactic battle between Satan and God, and sores and physical extremities being being incredibly tested by Satan from a physical viewpoint, physical vantage point. It's, it's obvious people could see it. There's these big sores. He's in pain. In addition to all the things around him, including his entire family, these 10 kids, only he and his wife are left you say Satan is so powerful to even bring on physical maladies yes but he can't do anything that God doesn't want him to do who's who's choreographing the events here God is God's choreographing things there are there are ways and means For which we have to say God can do what he wants. He's sovereign. He's in charge. And Satan can only do what God allows and directs him to do. And ours is to say, trust God with our spiritual lives. Because if God wanted to do some of these things to us so that we might be that object lesson in front of Satan, he can do that. He can do that if he chooses. But... In all this, God Himself is not the tempter. Satan is. That's what the Bible says. James chapter 1. And what do we do? Hebrews 11. Trust God by faith. Trust God by faith. Faith are those things that are hoped for and the conviction of things what? Not seen. Job didn't see these things. But he trusted God. You say, yeah, but he, but he later wanted to go in sort of a court situation with God. Yes, and I suppose you and I would. And it wouldn't take us all those chapters of the narrative to get there, right? Sure. Sure he had doubts. Sure he wanted to ask God. And even when he asked God, chapter 39, God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Look, there are times, there are some things that are going on that you and I don't know. But you and I have to trust God sovereignly, even in that which is going on, even that which we don't quite understand. Pallison says, evil spirit beings exist within the sovereignty of God's purposes to redeem and judge responsible human beings. God uses the evil of the evil... To demonstrate His justice and purify the righteous. He uses the evil of the righteous to demonstrate His mercy and to define the terms of our ongoing spiritual warfare. Yeah. It happens like that. But let me encourage you. Number three. Number three. Demons, even though powerful, Satan, even though he's powerful, cannot inhabit you. He cannot inhabit you and thus cannot force you to sin against your will. So, wage war in the power of the Spirit. Wage war in the power of the Spirit. Demons, even though they're powerful, Satan, even though he's really powerful, far more powerful than we are, if you're a true bona fide Christian... If you are indeed a believer in Jesus Christ and you're assured of that and there's certainty, He cannot spatially inhabit you. There's no way. There's no way that can happen. Look in Colossians chapter 1. I don't believe that Satan or his demons can spatially inhabit a Christian. A non-Christian? Yes, of course. And the Bible is replete with such. But not the believer, not the believer. Colossians chapter 1. What does verse 11 say? May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And I love this. Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of what? Darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been transferred, folks. Yes, it is true that Satan and his hosts can spatially inhabit, that means go into the mind, the heart, the body, the physical body of unbelievers, but not believers Not believers. Not true believers. We've been transferred, delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Do you praise God for that? Is that not even more of a reason to thank God that when He transferred you, when He delivered you, you became, as a believer, one in whom Satan cannot get into? He can tempt you. And he can try to do all kinds of things from the outside in, but he cannot do something from the inside out. Can't. Chapter 3 of Colossians. Paul does say, put to death therefore what what is earthly in you. See, What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And someone's going to say, oh, but see, all of that, that's what the devil is. And he gets inside me and he creates in me sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, the devil made me do it. No, he can't force you to sin against your will. He can't do that. He's cunning. He's cunning. There's a lot of trickery. He'll try to fool you, but he can't come inside you and do these things in you, both inside and outside, because God is sovereign over him and he's delivered you from the domain of darkness. Now you say, "Well, what about Ephesians?" It says in chapter 4, verse 27, and I've heard teaching on this too, in Ephesians 4:27, Give the, opportunity, give the devil no opportunity. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Some of the translations might say give no place. It's the word tapas. And there are some and it could be translated give no place and they say, see that's a spatial term. Uh, that 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 could very well mean that there is the possibility of spatial inhabitation. Don't give spatial inhabitation opportunity to the devil. Well, if that were true, and then they add, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So you can grieve the Spirit, you can give opportunity, place, uh, a kind of location for the devil to operate, especially in anger here, according to verse 26, But if that's true, chapter 5, verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So wait a minute. Is this battle that's that's occurring in the Christian life a battle where the devil is inside me or demons are inside me and the Holy Spirit's also inside me? and the Holy Spirit is wanting to control me and fill me, and the Holy Spirit is doing battle with a with a hideous demonic being who I've given place to? Not inside. Not inside. You've been delivered. You've been transferred. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. Remember that from 1 Corinthians 6? Yes, you were those kinds of people. You were doing those sins, but you were washed. You were cleansed. You were sanctified. You were Cleaned by the Holy Spirit, and now He fills you. You say, Well, then why do I sin anymore? Because when you were cleansed, you didn't become perfect. When He cleansed you, you didn't become perfect. And you still battle what we call indwelling sin. You say, Well, that's sin, that's that's the devil. Well, those are the devil's ideas. Uh, those are his philosophies that's the way he attempts to get at us but he can't get inside us i don't believe the bible teaches us that look at romans chapter 6 romans chapter 6 we are we are delivered from this beloved Look at chapter 6 verse 6. We know that our old man was crucified with him past tense in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And it's progressively being brought to nothing every day so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see all of this all of this salvation language, all of this sanctification language is telling us unmistakably that there's been the great divide. We've been washed. We've been cleansed. We've been delivered. Verse 7, For one who has died has been what? Set free from sin. I think we can we can certainly, like that first point that I gave tonight, say Satan is real and he wants to cunningly destroy true Christians. But if they're true Christians, he can't cunningly destroy you. See, that's the difference. Because you've been freed from sin. You can agree to affirm the reality of Satan and the reality of demons, but don't go so far in the other direction that he sounds like he's got more place, more opportunity, more sway, more power to enable us or, or hinder us from doing God's work, or, uh, to, in a, una, to be unable, I should say, and we give him so much sway that these verses are meaningless. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Oh, there, there it is. Well, well, then maybe that's what Satan can do. He can make us obey their passions. No, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You see, this language is so clear. There's a line of demarcation. We have been delivered. We're not now slaves of the barking siren sounds of Satan. Verse 22, but now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. You say, ah, but what about chapter 7? I don't do the things that I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do. Yes, but doesn't verse 25 say, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Never fails to say thank God. Chapter 8. Chapter 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, their minds are blinded. They're not walking according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. But if the Spirit, verse 11, of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Praise God for that. Verse 15, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We've been been delivered. Yeah, he's powerful, but he can't spatially get inside you and force you to sin against your will. So wage war in the power of the Spirit. What's the power of the Spirit? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's, it's walking in the power of the Spirit. Yes, be controlled by the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5.18. And we're out of time. We need to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And you know what? That's okay. We need to take a bath. Right? Right? We've been talking about filthy demonic beings. We'll pick it up next time. Let's pray. Father, I ask that through what You are teaching us, through Your Word, we would not be susceptible to the siren barking sounds of Satan. Thank You that He cannot spatially inhabit the true believer, the washed and cleansed believer. Oh, outside of us, tempting us, suggesting evil acts, sure, but not inside. We have the Spirit of God resident within us and the two of them are not inside us with battling for control, not so. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would give us a sense of how to understand this this enemy who wants to do everything he can to to make us unprofitable for the kingdom. And I pray that you would give us, in a sense, even now, with the celebration of the Lord's Supper, a way to thank Jesus Christ for what He's done for us in liberating us and protecting us from any spatial inhabitation of the evil one. Those days are gone from us. And even though He's real, He cannot harm us because greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. Yes, Lord, we do battle with sin. But it's our sin. It's our remaining sin. It's our, it's our indwelling sin. And, and Satan tries to tempt us from the outside to see that sin as pleasurable and necessary. And we want to do battle with our own sin in our own hearts, in the here and the now. And may we be protected by Your Spirit and Your sovereign control over whatever Satan wants to do to us. And may we do that for your glory and your honor. In Christ's name, amen. Then come before us and.